Hey guys, welcome to the Prereq Podcast. I'm Tyler, and thank you for joining us for our second episode. This week, we're talking to Lee from Kennesaw State University. I met Lee through a childhood friend that I recently reconnected with. And on this episode, we talk about what it was like growing up in the South and his journey throughout college. So, here's our conversation with Lee. What's up, Lee? Hey guys, how are y'all? Doing good. good. Man. So Lee, what's your story? Yeah, thanks for having me. So, um, I am from Macon, Georgia, which is right dead center in the heart of uh, middle Georgia. And I uh, grew up there with both parents in a Christian household. Um, dad was Episcopalian. Uh, mom was Methodist before they got married. And then my mom uh, talked him over and uh, kind of made him change <laughs> for the better. Um, and I got a little brother who's adopted. Uh, when I was born, uh, my mom had uh, some complications with my birth. And so she wasn't able to have kids afterwards. Uh, and so thankfully we got my brother for, uh, about five years later, um, just South of us from Valdosta. So, um, he's a, he's a knucklehead and nothing like me, but we love him to death. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, uh, grew up in Macon, like I said, had a really good, uh, friend group growing up, um, went to middle school and high school, in elementary school with most of them uh, and then was super involved with Boy Scouts and uh, and a little bit with my church not so much um, just because they met at the same time on Sunday nights uh, so I, I had the decision to pick Boy Scouts over church um, there was a decision my parents parents definitely like empowered me to make uh, and did so and, and looking back it was absolutely the right decision because it made me a very practical person and the leadership development and learning of skills, not only that I use in everyday life, but also my love for the outdoors, um, definitely derived from that. Um, and was still involved with the church on a, on a little bit of scale, but it's hard when you can't meet every week. So, um, went to an elementary school that was kind of a magnet school, uh, very much inside of a bubble. Uh, and then middle school and high school, my bubble was for sure popped because I went to a majority black, uh, inner city public school. And so at the time I hated it. I mean, no person likes being uh, one of 10 white people or people mm. that are like them in anywhere, whether it's school or a baseball team or a church or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, but it's something I, I learned about very young and as an adult now, and, and especially with everything going on now, I can see how that was super, super beneficial because even though for eight hours a day from when the first bell to the last bell rang, I was a minority, I went home to a very supportive family and I went home to a very supportive group of friends and, and, and family that um, a lot of those people that I went to school with, even though I was a minority, the majority of those people that went there didn't go home to that. Um, and that doesn't matter if they were black or Hispanic or white. Um, that's just the nature of our society, um, is that a lot of people don't grow up with two parents who have decent jobs and a loving family and can put food on the table and have you involved and push you to be a better person and challenge you. So, um, at the time wasn't the best thing, but, uh, in the long run, it definitely paid off. And a lot of the way I think today can relate to people, empathize and stuff like that. So, um, one of those escapes was Boy Scouts, like I said, being super practical, um, love, love, love the outdoors. And um, that's really where I excelled. I uh, got my Eagle Scout when I was 17 
and um, I don't know. They say when you get your Eagle Scout, you can pick other Eagle Scouts out, and I think that's mm. it's kind of weird, but it's kind of it's it's very true. Interesting. So, um, it's super impressive for uh, people there. You know, you'll be out in the woods or something like that. And you can start a fire, and they're like, "Oh yeah, what are you a Boy Scout?" Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I actually am. <laughs> so, um, and I love 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 the outdoors, and the quarantine's actually been great because I work in sports or worked in sports and so I kind of got disconnected from doing things in the outdoors for a long time but because of quarantine and have an ample amount of time I've been able to reconnect so um and that's been great so um church growing up was was good I definitely had like a, a really solid group um but they were and, and solid leaders but like I said I kind of picked Boy Scouts over church um and a lot of that came from one, my parents giving me the decision. And I thought that camping in the woods was a little bit more fun than sitting in a small group room on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but two, uh, I had, I was one of one other guy was in my grade. So I was either with a small group or doing worship or whatever the activity was on that Sunday night with people that were one or two years younger than me or one or two years older than me. And like everybody knows in high school and middle school, one year makes a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're either the runt of the group or you were the guy who was, everyone else was immature. Um, so that was kind of put a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just kind of the nature of who was in the, who was in that Sunday school group. So um yeah, went to start, went through uh, high school, was in the international baccalaureate program. So um, graduated from my high school central at, uh, in 2016. And then my senior year there, uh, I was looking at schools, looked at Clemson, LSU, and then at Kennesaw um, in those order. That was kind of my preferred, but got waitlisted at Clemson. Uh, found out in the uh, 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York City that I had been waitlisted. So that was kind of a two emotional <laughs> roller coasters going on at the same time. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so that uh, that sucked. I was definitely like all hyped up to go there. I had some friends that went there that were a year ahead of me and they loved it. Um, but, you know, God's got a plan and he didn't want me to go there. So um LSU was my number two, visited there with a buddy of mine, and he actually ended up going there for his freshman year and then transferred. But uh, it was eight hours away, and I didn't have any any desire to be that far from home. So ended up on Kennesaw. It was really a whim. Um, Kennesaw is kind of a, a, a secret school in Georgia. It's been growing for the past couple of years or for a long time, but um, just got a football team. We're in our sixth year. We've got 36,000 students on campus. Uh, we're actually the third largest school in Georgia, and most people are super surprised to hear that. So yes, I was. Um, <laughs> um, so went to Kennesaw on a whim. Uh, didn't had never set foot on campus. My grandparents literally lived 20 minutes away, and I saw marketing and stuff like advertisements about them getting a football team. But other than that, I didn't really pay much attention to it until orientation when I had to show up and be like, Oh, okay. So this is where I'm going next year. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, that was totally like in the moment I was just kind of dejected from not being accepted to Clemson. and was like, I don't really care. Um, and so, but man, did God have such a, just a powerful journey out for me for the next four or five years. Um, Went to orientation, got plugged in with some of the athletics people because uh, I am a sports management major, and I knew I had declared that going in freshman year, so I was already looking for jobs or something to get involved with. So 
got involved with the football team, being an equipment manager. Uh, did that for three years. Um, super fun. Got to travel with the team, work all the practices, get two conference championship rings, uh, travel all over the country. It was so much fun. Had a great, great, great group of guys, um, which was the first time I'd had such a group of guys since high school. Um, mm. Had some friends in high school that around sophomore and junior year, they got into stuff that I just didn't want to be a part of. And while it sucked to, to lose that connection with a strong community of guys, I knew at the time it was the right decision because I didn't want to be associated or take part in the things that they were taking part in. Um, so had, went through the last two years of high school without a good community guys until freshman year of college. And I think that's definitely God knew this guy needs this community. Mm -hmm. And so I got it right off the bat day one before school, two weeks before even school started, I was working football camp with not only a hundred football players, but, um, coaches that were, you know, pretty intentional with their in time, um, and, and treated us pretty well. And then also with our equipment staff and the, and the other college guys that I was with. And a lot of the two of them are my roommates still. And um, we're actually playing golf with a bunch of them tomorrow. So uh, that community has been super, super strong and just kind of, I was uh, a little worried about coming into school and making friends, but uh, my bubble, once again, just completely popped right off the bat. And that was awesome. So did that for three years. Um, did Young Life for two years, was a leader, but it just didn't really click. And then my junior year, my boss with equipment actually left at the beginning of the season for Notre Dame. And so uh, he was our full-time equipment manager. We were, we had 12 students underneath him and I was the head student equipment manager. And uh, he, the coaches and the staff said, all right, you're the guy. We're not hiring anybody till February. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> So me and me and the other managers, we just kind of owned it and took after it. We knew what to do. Uh, we knew it was going to be a challenge. We definitely got burnt out, spent several uh, uh, shower times after practice in the shower crying because it was just like, oh, my God, I'm so burnt. But um, it was, once again, looking back on it, in the moment, it sucked. But I would not go back to that season, but I would go back to being an equipment manager again because <laughs> it was just – hanging out with friends, throwing the football around for four hours a day. Like that's just heaven for a freshman, sophomore, junior <laughs> in college. So, <laughs> um, so did that. And then after that year of my boss leaving and, and taking on that responsibility and just that awesome season, it went in conference again and going pretty deep in the playoffs. Um, the day after the season, I was, I just got this overwhelming sense of it's time for you to try something else. So started looking around, made some good relationships over the years with, other people in the university and uh, landed a job literally on the other side of the stadium was a football locker room uh, with a company called Night Owl. They run all the events on campus. So um, sports management is sports slash events management. It's kind of two in the same. So I uh, was able to get internship credit and then this job actually paid, whereas um, the football job was scholarship. Uh, so was able to do that and has moved up the ranks there. Um, got super involved with a good church that's in the area. And that's something when I was in young life, I was in, in desperate search of was a, it was a good church community and um, didn't really know it at the time that I was in a desperate search for looking back on it. I was definitely desperate for that community and that Christ-based community. Um, so got involved with them my junior year while we were going through that football ordeal. And that was kind of my lifeline for those four or five, six months and then has bit, continued to be my lifeline and, and to grow there. I've gotten a huge community of Christian like men and women who are 
um, who are my age and that, and older adults that love mentoring people my age. Uh, they have a service called the living room that meets every Wednesday night and they, they feed us free dinner and they, we have mm-hmm. awesome worship and a good message. And um, unfortunately due to COVID, we weren't able to meet for the second half mm-hmm. of the semester, but, um, and won't be able to meet at all this fall. So I'm definitely missing out on that. But over the course of the year and a half that I was super involved with them, uh, had a great, great, great community that has been built, got involved with their high school ministry, uh, got 10 little rugrats of, of freshmen now going sophomore um, nice. guys that drive me absolutely crazy and um, but are awesome. And I love that uh, it's like having 10 of my little brothers. So I want to pull my hair out twice that's as awesome. much, 10 times as much. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my my story from, I guess, not a thousand feet, but that's 100 feet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So, so take us back to, you know, middle high school and what was it like being a minority, um, you know, as a, honestly, as a white person, which is, I mean, not a story that's shared a whole lot. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, looking through the lens of being a 22 year old now and everything that I've learned since then, um, instead of looking at it as a 14 year old, then uh, it sucked. Um, and it's something that it's like, this is completely backwards. You know, I've, mm. this, I've never experienced this before. Uh, even in like elementary school, it was fairly diverse, but the, you know, white people were still the minor- majority. Um, and then not only was I my, a minority, I was a severe minority, like one of 10 white people in my grade. Um, but all of it was just preparing, you know, the ground for what was to come. You know, if you were to say in, I don't know, 2012, when I was a freshman, that I would be able to relate on this level with what's going on now, I would have been like, no, that's, that's crazy. You know, high school's gonna be great. It's just like high school musical. No, it's not. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, it was definitely weird. I struggled a lot. Um, first year, first day of middle school, a black guy came up to me and said, this isn't the school for you, white boy. I was like, huh, nice welcoming <laughs> to me. So Um, you know, it was just like, you felt uncomfortable and you felt exposed and you felt, um, kind of like you had to surround yourself with other people, the, the 10 or so white people that were like me to, to kind of protect yourself. Um, and if I could go back, I wouldn't change it for the world though, because it was now with every, especially with everything going on now, um, you're just able to connect on an, on a very shallow level you're able to connect but that's enough to really build a connection because like i alluded to earlier i was there for eight hours a day i was dropped off in my mom's car who didn't have to or was a nurse but took off the first eight years of us being alive to take care of me and my brother Mm -hmm. um and had the ability to do that because my dad had a really good job um and had you know we had that flexibility and that um financial support um, that love and caringness of our parents that, you know, I was able to get dropped off. I didn't have to, I never rode mm-hmm. the bus. My mom packed my lunch for me every day mm-hmm. where most of these kids, you know, we see it a lot now with coronavirus. The, the schools are having to supply lunches over the summers because families can't afford to feed their kids. And it's just sad, but I can relate to, or I can at least empathize with, yeah, I grew up in that. Like I know I was friends with people who, they went home to a single mother that was raising three kids and struggled to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so just being able to to empathize and and relate at least on a you know I didn't experience it personally myself, um, but I had friends and I was surrounded with people that did. Uh, you're really able to see like, hey, this is a problem in the world, and this is something that we should definitely be focusing more intentionally on, and um, that these people need a lot of love just as much as just as much as you and I do. So, mm-hmm. so I, I feel like you be being white um just so listeners know yeah um um, being white right where in this country you're not a minority but entering a space where all of a sudden you become a minority um, for the first time right you have to you look around say okay now everyone looks like me um and you are now in a place where how do I navigate a world where I am, uh, yeah, the minority, anyone else looks like me. So how did you, I mean, was that the first day, you said the first day was not a really good experience for you because it was, it was like, you know, a culture shock, but how did you, you know, leave or how, how did you get through middle school and high school being a minority um, with having a good perspective or good experience? Yeah, I think it took a couple of years for that perspective to really develop and for me to realize that that experience was good. I mean, my parents having their wisdom and their their intuition, they knew what I was going through. I mean, I came home some days just being like, heard this today in the hallway, you know, um, but I think they obviously knew like this is going to be good for him in the long run because mm-hmm. they didn't grow up like that. I mean, my, my dad grew up going to private school. My mom went to a majority white school up here in Cogliani. Mm-hmm. That, um, so, but they eventually had their bubbles popped. Um, and so they knew what I was going through. Um, and so uh, they, the way I got through it, at least at the time, was um, being in the IB program, we weren't exactly in the general population of students. We were obviously in special classes, higher, you know, elevation classes. And so that room was still very diverse though. I mean, Mm -hmm. we were still, the whites were a minority in there. And, but I think that was good because for me, at least that allowed me to realize that, Hey, there are black people that are in my class. He's smarter than me. (laughs) And that I really enjoy spending time with and that I, really uh look up to and and admire and um they take charge and 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 not just white people with several asians hispanics whatever that Mm -hmm. um that really you know they have the same traits that i do um and so learning that at a you know in high school i think was very very important to show like look everyone has the same potential it's just a matter of how they're poured into um and unfortunately with different cultures and different races there are definitely lines of okay yeah white privilege is a thing because white privilege doesn't mean that i think i'm better than someone else it just means Mm -hmm. that yes i've myself and my color um i get a little bit of a head start compared to other races or people that are are a little bit worse off um i think someone one of my friends during this time of um of racial tension. Um, I've watched a lot of Emmanuel Acho's uncomfortable conversations with a black man. And I thought they were great and still watch them. I think they come out weekly. 
um, Chip Gaines, Joanna Gaines are some of my favorite people. Um, and they were on it. And so it, it inspired me to have conversations with, with mm-hmm. people that I work with and share life with. And, you know, one of my friends told me during our sit downs, he's like, think about it like this. Like what, think about white privilege in this sense. Slavery happened. Okay. We don't blame you for slavery. You did not own slaves, but mm-hmm. you are a product of, the society advancement that slaves were held back by. So not only did we have to go through slavery, but we also had to go through social um, Mm -hmm, rights mm -hmm. change and everything that happened in the uh, late 20th century and well, 20, yeah, 20th century. Um, And then all the stuff that's going back now. So you had a head start. And even though you aren't, personally contributing to your head start you are profiting you are you a product of that head start right you are benefiting exactly from that head start so great example of that is my parents on both sides my you know know, our families were you know not super well off but upper middle class and but that was from generations of Mm -hmm. families building up wealth and building up Mm -hmm. stature in certain cities and stuff like that to be able to have the impact on the community and stuff like that for, for me to participate in. And so I think that's where people get white privilege mm-hmm. backwards is it's not saying that I think someone's better, that I think I'm better than a black person. No, it's just saying that you just need to be aware that you've never been judged or you've never not gotten something because of your race. So it sounds like, uh, a lot of your experience going through, um, again, navigating racial diversity as a minority in your school, in your setting, um, you attribute to um, good, having a solid parents, right, that can speak into you and help you through that. Um, I kind of want to, yeah, maybe we can talk about that also. But I, I'm curious if there was an instance where you actually met someone of a different race that you have a conversation with while you're in middle school or high school that really kind of changed your perspective. Is there anything like that that happened? Mm, um, I don't know. High school and middle school is <laughs> such a blur. Like it's hard to uh, yes, remember, I like, get that. Spe- specific uh, right. like conversations or paradigm shifts. Because it, um, I mean, I'm assuming it was happening though, right? Since you were. I mean, oh there. yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah, not like you oh, weren't yeah. talking to people. Okay. No, absolutely. Like I said, most of our classes were, were right. super diverse. Um, right. So, yes, those conversations were happening. But I think part of, and this is just like life in general, is you can continue to learn from what you've experienced even years down the road. Right. So, like, what is I, what I was experiencing in high school, I don't know if I truly learned that lesson until midway through college. Yeah. And yeah, even even so, like, now with the conversation because my the experience that i've had over the years both in high middle school high school college and then my maturity as not only a person in western society but also as a christian and also as a man has now given me the ability to say okay this is this is how all these things equal what i believe today Mm -hmm. and this is why this is the lesson that i've learned from that so Mm -hmm. I actually think the past whatever two months um, I've learned the most lessons from all of those experiences because I couldn't, the lesson that I learned talking with Zachary Bolds, who is in my high school classes, 
that was just a conversation at the time. Right. That was just right. a conversation with a guy that was in my class that I was yeah. doing homework with who was black. Yeah. Nothing, nothing super big is going to come from that. Yeah, but those conversations aren't talking about right. life and yeah. Right. Yeah. And if they are, it's an, it's a opinion or a belief system that isn't their own. It's something yes. that yes. either their parents instilled on them or they yes. heard, or, you know, they just don't have the brain capacity to, right. to really form, you know, legitimate arguments <laughs> or opinions. So right. I, I see that all the time when I hang out with my small group kids. So, um, but all of those conversations over the course of the past I don't know, mm-hmm. 10, 15 years have accumulated into, okay, yeah, I, when I had that conversation or the hundreds of times that I had those conversations or worked on projects or, or worked together at work or went to church with these people, like that's accumulated to, this is the way I'm wired and the way that I think the way I do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this, these are the lessons that I've learned from it. it kind of shapes your lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Makes sense. So what have conversations been like for the past, you know, two or three months since George Floyd's, you know, murder um, with, with maybe your family or people that do share the same experience that you do have those conversations? Are you having those conversations and have those conversations been beneficial or pretty hard or maybe both at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, so with the, with our, black friends they're they're uncomfortable but that's good like from uncomfort usually comes growth um but with people that look like me talk like me act like me grew up like me um it's kind of all over the place i've got friends that um they're not so open to the idea or um, open to the idea of what of just understanding and believing everything that's going on uh you know, some people there's a, with everything going on, I don't know, social media, but um, it seems like there's a lot of tension over is white privilege really a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And for some people that's a, that's a, yeah, it's a thing. Like, are you kidding me? But for other people it's, I don't, I don't think it is, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but I think I, our small group leader, our director said this this weekend that was really, really powerful. I thought was, you know, we don't have to agree, but I need you to commit and I need you to love. And so even though, yeah, there are nuances and there are technicalities and there are definitions that people use for different things. I mean, all across the board, white privilege, what white privilege means to me might mean something completely different who grew up in North Florida and a completely different upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but having that conversation with those two different definitions can really kind of like form a conversation because what you think white privilege means isn't racism. It's, it's a ability to have a head start and to benefit from that. So, um, they've been challenging. They've been uncomfortable. They haven't always been, I mean, they've been sometimes confrontational, um, mm-hmm but it's a conversation nonetheless. And I think that's the best thing that's come from all of this is there are lots of people out there having conversations for maybe the first time. I mean, it was really uncomfortable for me to say, Hey, Marco and Paige, do y'all want to come over and sit down with me and three of my other white friends who we all love super intentionally to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Now the people that were in that room, all about it. 
but even in that room, there are different variations of opinions, right? Layers. Um, yeah. Right. Right. And so uh, we all have different political beliefs, you know, along the same lines, but different um, pages from Pittsburgh. So she's, you know, up North, she's black. She's, you know, definitely leans to the left. I'm a white man from the South. You know, <laughs> Give you one guess which direction. I like. So, um, it's, you know, you fight with that, but at the end of the day, I told, we all hugged and said we loved each other and left and on, on a completely different understanding. So, um, yeah, I mean, those conference conversations have been beneficial. Um, and also like, as this stuff rolls out, I don't love one of the side effects of everything, everything going on right now is just the emotion and to a degree, like, yes, feel what you're going to feel. But when you're having a conversation about it, be cool, calm and collective because if you bring too much emotion to the, to the table, you're going to have a shield up of, okay, I'm not ready mm -hmm. to listen to anything this person is saying because I am so firmly set in what I believe. And my emotion is guarding that, that I don't, I, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And I'm not going to convince you of anything that I believe. And you're not going to convince me of anything you believe because I'm so angry or I'm so mm -hmm. sad or whatever. Like, yes, it's good to feel those things, but have the ability to say, okay, this is a conversation and it's going to, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. And it might lead to me feeling one way or the other, but we're going to stay cool, calm and collective. So, right. uh, so I know you're not a spokesman of your generation, <laughs> right? Um, but in your opinion, right? Because what we see so much today are these extreme examples of like all the Karen accounts, right? Or all like the, I don't know, just like the crazy racist things or the crazy, like, just crazy reactions that people have. And that's what a lot of people see today. Um, mm -hmm. Which again, I, I don't know if that's actually the conversations that are really happening in the real world. Um, yeah. So someone in your generation, do you feel like a lot of people are able to have those kind of dialogues, those sit down dialogues that you're having where it may be two different worldviews, two different um, opinions, but coming together and having like, so tell me what it's like in, in where, tell me where, what it's like coming from your world, right? Yeah. And having a, a just a peaceful dialogue. dialogue. Does that, right, do right. you feel like that's actually happening? I, at least in my realm, it is. I mean, I keep a pretty tight friend group. Um, I, somebody, I saw something on LinkedIn a couple months ago. It was like, you, is it better to have 2000 people follow you on LinkedIn or 150. And it's like mm -hmm. 150 because you can be very in depth with the people who, you know, mm -hmm. and those people are actually willing to do something for you if you need it besides, you know, the 2000 that you said, Hey, to right. one time at a convention. So um, the people that I know and that I surround myself with and that I choose to spend my time with and have intentional relationships. Yes, absolutely. I don't know if that's the same for my generation as a whole. Um, I totally agree with you that everything that gets put on social media or the news or anything like that is 100% either is an extreme of some sort. It very little do you see middle ground, mm -hmm. which is sad. That's not entertaining. I don't, that's why. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't sell. Uh, right. I heard one time and I thought this was very interesting too, that yeah, press is free, but press also makes money. So they're going to put out there what sells. So, you know, me and Emmanuel Acho's uh, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man has 
incredible content and it has people coming to common ground every week mm -hmm. and white people and black people coming together talking about super uncomfortable topics but you don't see them him getting picked up by nbc or cbs or any of these major networks like you know so, so i i know that they're happening but that's where you kind of just have to to turn a blind eye to um social media and just have faith that yes these conversations are happening and that's where i've had conversations with some people that they went to you know several protests and and because that's what they felt called to do i've never been that type of person i've never felt called to go out and protest now what they're doing is great i'm mm -hmm. all behind it um but for me personally i because i'm very practical and very rational very log logic based I don't see anything happening from a protest besides just a bunch of shouting and screaming and waving. And yes, it brings attention for a split instance, but I'm not sure it does anything in the long term to actually fix the issue. So where I say, okay, this is how I'm going to fix a problem is the people that I interact with at work, whether I have a relationship with them or if we're just coworkers and I see you once every six months, I'm going to make sure that the little bit of time that we have together is I show you love because that's mm -hmm. what I'm called to do. And so while I'm all for protests and all that stuff, I just, me and James had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. He's like, I just don't understand what you mean by you don't feel called to protest. It's like, I don't feel like for me that solves anything right. because yes, it brings issues to light. Yes. It shows that there's support and that's great. But I'm actually going to get behind something and do the work. And I right. think a lot of those people who protest have the same mentality. I'm not saying at all that they go out there and they just scream and yell and they go home and kick back and watch Netflix because a lot mm -hmm. of those people are super, super passionate and they have even more challenging conversations than I would. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying the work that is done isn't necessarily done in the streets. It's done with the people who you love and you spend time with. Okay, Lee, so um, going back in your story, right? Because you said that you, you were talking about how you got more involved in Boy Scouts than church. Mm -hmm. um, but today you are, you, I feel like you're very involved in church. So how did that transition happen? Because it didn't sound like you were super Christian. I'm air quoting my hands. Right. <laughs> um, growing up. So when, when did that happen in your life? And how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean... Looking back in high school, it was definitely a, my parents made me go to church. Um, I labeled myself as a Christian, but I wasn't practicing. And I think that's true for 75, 80% of high schoolers or people who are under college age, um, just because we're children. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, I made my faith really my own um, in college. Uh yeah. So yesterday I was talking about how I gave my life to Christ in high school. And that's, that's deadline. That's when I gave my life to Christ. I gave it to Christ in a humid, hot chapel, open air chapel in Brunswick, Georgia on a mission trip. Um, I don't know what came over me. I did it. And that was, that's when I, that's when it became a thing. Um, but there wasn't any big life change. There wasn't, of baptism there wasn't a you know okay everything's you know peaches and cream from here on out it was all right i'm a christian 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really started diving in deeper to my faith in college. So got involved with Young Life, but I made Young Life my church for the okay. first couple of years. Did, was there a desire since, since it sounds like you kind of swept by the emotional moment in a mission trip, like we've all been there, right? <laughs> right. Um, and you were like, okay, this is it. I'm a, now, I'm, now I'm a Christian. Um, right. But then you said there wasn't much, you know, life change after that moment. So why, why were you trying to get involved in Young Life, a Christian organization? Yeah. So I think, I think part of it was uh, the Holy Spirit saying, okay. putting a need in me of, I need to be in a Christian environment. Um, that was not of my own accord. That mm-hmm. was not on um, anything of me saying, man, I really desire to lead kids. Like that was <laughs> not it. It was, I know I need to be around good people and where to go other than a Christian organization. Young Life could have been crew. It could have been a whole right. other myriad of things. Um, I've yesterday I mentioned too that I was, I wanted to keep a triangle in my life. And as long as I kept that triangle, I was good. Academics, classes make sure my classes are on point make sure i'm getting good grades career football work football was developing my career in that way and my leadership aspects there and then faith and church of christianity just in general uh and so for the first two years that was young life um and like Mm -hmm. i said i made young life my church um and it was good i mean i for the time it was super flexible I was around people of like-minded Christians who were the same age as me and still figuring things out, but there was no depth to it. It was very shallow. Um, and it was just very much checking a box. Uh, and then junior year after my boss left and I was like, man, I need some life giving to me in some way. I had to quit young life because my boss left and I just couldn't make the time commitment. Um, so I had, I was uh, that my triangle fell apart right there for a couple of weeks. And so a really good friend of mine invited me to church and it was the living room at Andy Stanley's church called West, Westock city church. And, uh, that kind of was the start of this is what it means to be, you know, an intentional follower of Christ, um, over the course of the next two years, even now, um, I, started going to church on my own accord on Sunday when I could during football season. It was tough. I would usually watch online, but during the off season. And then when I stopped going to football, I made sure I was off on Sundays and I made sure I was at church. I made, and then getting involved, making sure that every Wednesday I just made it a priority to be, to get the word, be with that community of friends of like-minded individuals um, and to get poured into, because that was one thing that I did learn from uh, young life is, now, it's a service organization. You are pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. But if you're not getting poured into, then you can't pour out effectively. And so I was not getting poured into. And so I was essentially draining a well that had been drained for a long, long time. And I don't even know if it was ever filled to begin with. So um, going to church and being poured into and over the course of the two years, developing how I was poured into, of, okay, it's not just Sunday mornings. It's not just Wednesday nights, but it's getting coffee with our small group director. It's being around developing a friend group that we do everything in life together now. And the conversation, a casual lunch conversation at McAllister's turns into, you know, what are you struggling with right now? What has Christ been teaching you over the past six months? You know, super in-depth conversations. Um, so that now, you know, two years later, every day it's God is speaking to me in some way, 
whether it's through friends or um, something, a podcast that someone sends me or a book someone suggested to me or remembering a conversation that I had with someone that was super intentional and kind of um, rethinking something that we talked about and uh, analyzing that or um, yeah, just kind of looking at it from a, from a bird's eye view of you're supposed to have your Christianity isn't a bunch of check boxes. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be intentionality. And so if you don't put time aside for your faith and your God and your people, then are you really a Christian? Are you really a practicing Christian? Um, so, yeah. So, uh, so what was the difference? And again, you may not know, it might just be all the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, because that's how it works. But um, you were part of Young Life, right? And then you kind of stopped going because it felt like a checklist thing. And I'm sure there's nothing against Young Life, right? No, like, absolutely not. Anything wrong with Young Life. Um, but then all of a sudden you were like, well, now I want to actually go to church. Was there anything that prompted that? Or was that, again, just like part of your spiritual journey? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a friend who invited me. Uh, she and I were young life leaders together and kind of had similar views of at least our young life group, which was that it was, you know, a little legalistic and a lot of checking boxes. And I didn't love that, but it was kind of the mm-hmm. season I was in. It was like, okay, well, this is what I got. So I'm going to make the best of it. Um, and then it was, like I said, not anything of my accord. It was my friend who has been involved with Woodstock city, went to their sister church in Athens uh, went to the, uh, the living room for the first two years of, of her college career and said, Hey, I recognized that in me and said, Hey, you need to be bored into come to church on Wednesday nights. And so I came and I haven't missed one since. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the, it was not me saying, Ooh, you know, I need to restore my triangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that I did. I probably wouldn't have done it without someone prompting me to say, Hey, come here, you know, and it was just an ask, right? Yeah, she right. just asked, hey, you should come to right. church with me one day. And then right. your life changed. Exactly. Yep. And not only my life, but also, like I said, the eight other guys that I was in equipment mm-hmm. manager mm-hmm. with, I got them to come by Christmas. And every single one of them came for the next semester and have continued to come. And my roommate, who um, was a manager with me, he's getting baptized in two weeks. Wow. And so, yeah, awesome. it, not only did that invitation invite me, but it invited, you know, 10 or 15 other people. So yeah, completely, completely changed the trajectory of me exiting college. Yeah. Well, have there been any big paradigm shifts that have happened from, you know, when you, when you graduated from high school to where you are now spiritually, have there been like um, big, big spiritual renovations of your heart um, to use a phrase? Yeah. I mean, kind of going back to how I became a Christian and gave my life to Christ. It was in that chapel in Brunswick. And that's where I say kind of an ember was, you know, I don't know, made. (laughs) Um, And so my, my, my faith was lukewarm. It was nothing to be proud about. It was nothing to be content with. um, But it was just kind of there. And it was like, yeah, I, I identify as a Christian. Um, but I wasn't doing anything about that. And then young life came along and one of the best things, like, even though I ended up not being a young life leader, young life did teach me a lot. And one of the things that I was able to experience from young life was my fresh, my, the winter of my freshman year, we went on a leadership conference up to Windy Gap, one of their camps. And, um, 
they, at the end of the weekend, they said, all right, everybody's going to go out, spread out, um, and we're going to have quiet time for 20 minutes. I'd never done that before. And so I sat there for a little while. You don't have your phone. You don't have anything. You're just sitting. You're not reading. You're not doing it. You're just sitting in the silence. And it was deafening. You know, it was just like, this is incredible. And that was the, I, you just feel like this, I personally, I felt this, uh, like, just shiver over me of like, okay, like, this is legit. Like, I want to, I want more of this moment right here. Um, and so and the moment you're describing is a moment where you just pause. Yes. Right. In complete solitude. <laughs> right. <laughs> in the right. complete dark, in yeah. the mountains, in the cold, yeah. freezing my tail off, complete silence. Which Definitely sounds so simple, but right. like, right, this but is one of the most right. available moments to all of us. Exactly. <laughs> it's so, so easy, but it's so, so hard, especially mm -hmm. in Western society today. Um, but yeah, after that, I was like, man, I want more of that. Whatever I just felt right there, freezing my tail off, that's what I want more of. So that's where I said God dumped a 50-gallon barrel of gasoline on that ember, and it, it mm -hmm. lit up. And Ever since then, it's been a slow, steady, progressive towards where I am today and where I'm heading, you know, in the future. So um, that looked like um, paradigm shift wise. It was OK. And, and this is one of those lessons I was talking about. You, you're learning it for years, but you don't actually learn the lesson until mm -hmm, later. Mm -hmm. So over the past, I guess it was probably that summer afterwards. Um, I realized that I was a very practical Christian. Um, I growing up in Boy Scouts and my family that I was just raised to do things a certain way. But the way I was raised was very parallel to what Christ was calling me to be. Right. But it wasn't on the same track. You're parallel, but you're not on the same track. And so I noticed like, okay, I need to take like a three degree shift and move over a step and work to move like all these things that I've been taught to do, raised to do, have learned to do. And I need to bounce those off of and get that source right of, okay, this is, this is why I do it. You know, understanding the why behind it. Mm -hmm. um, a great example of that is uh, I actually looked it up last night because we were talking about it yesterday. Tyler was the fruit of the spirit and the boy scout uh, law. It, it's, they're very, very similar. They're like synonyms. Every single word is a synonym for the one, for the fruit of the spirit. Mm -hmm. But for me, I was living out all of those because I'm a boy scout. I'm an Eagle scout. That's what that stands for. Not because I'm a Christian. I'm a, trying to be more like Christ. And so understanding, yes, can keep doing exactly what you're doing, but plug into the real source. That is Christ um, was the big, big paradigm shift. Another great example is ever since I was, you know, a kid, um, I've always been surrounded by Christ-like men who I've been able, who have been mentored me and I, I listen to and, and they counsel me. Um, and a lot of that's because of my parents and scouting. And that's just kind of how that works is um, you have scout masters. And, and that was really why I picked scouts over. And my parents were content with me picking scouts over church was because they knew I was surrounded by Christ-like men. And so my faith was going to develop, even though it wasn't in a church. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I would make decisions or when I would have something, a situation come up on me, I would run it through the filter of, okay, this is how Craig Murphy would handle this situation because he's someone I look up to. He's someone that I admire and we've had super int intentional conversations and I would do it this way because I want to be more like him. 
-hmm. And now after seeing, okay, I need to move my track over a little bit. It's came up with that same situation and same circumstance. It's I want to be more like Christ. Mm -hmm. So I'm running it through the filter of, I want to be like Christ instead of, I want to be like Craig. Now, right. the reason why those paths are parallel is because Craig wanted to be more like Christ. So I probably would have came to the same decision of, okay, I'm going to do this this way, or I'm going to make this choice or do this thing. Um, but it's coming straight from the source instead of it being kind of liaised on to me from someone else. Right. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, unless you know the why, right? Christianity, it'll either be exhausting or like irrelevant to you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, right. Or it's, makes or it's built off of, and Tyler and I were talking about this yesterday. You, uh, you begin to idolize those people without even realizing yep. it. Yep. You know, I looking back on it and looking at the, the, the roughest meaning of idolizing, I definitely idolize those people that I looked up. Mm -hmm. to. Um, I did not call them my God. I did not do that, but I wanted to <laughs> right, be right. like them, you know? Right. So um, just being able to take that shift and say, and, and, but at the same time, that's exactly what they're supposed to do. Like I, when you're leading a small group of kids, yes, you want them to look up to you, but eventually they need to have that paradigm shift of, okay, I love Lee. I look up to Lee. Lee's fun. And he, you know, we have a good time. He speaks truth into my life, all that stuff. But at some point, you have to say, I don't want to be like Lee. I want to be like God. Because at some point, I'm going to let you down. Or my mentor mm -hmm. is going to let me mm -hmm. down. Because they're human, just like I, you know, just like mm -hmm. you and I are. So um, that's where, and then that idol comes crashing down. And right. you're like, well, everything that you taught me is, is, is a fake and not real. Yeah. And, so yeah. and then, then all the decisions I've made that were based off of the decisions you made and that you taught me are just right. as fake as you, you know? So, yeah. um, I think um, for sure that that paradigm shift was very monumental because even if those people that I look up to fail, I don't, you know, condemn them. You forgive them. You know, if, right. if as right. an awful of a sin as, you know, or, or doing a, you know, like sexual abuse or cheating on your wife or something like that, that doesn't mean that everything that they've taught me is bad. No, that just means that they had a, a something in their life that completely corrupted them and they fell to that. But that doesn't mean that everything that they've ever done is tainted. Right. What has, so. has anything changed practically from you going back to understanding the why better? Because um, you were, from my perspective, doing all the right things <laughs> just without the why. So did any of the right things change at all or does was it just a a, a change in you knowing <laughs> like jesus right um i think internally yes externally probably not um <laughs> i definitely became more confident in myself because of it mm. um so you didn't feel like a phony like you're just copying people it was right, actually right i know no, i'm exactly. doing it exactly exactly like I can stand up for the decision I made. I can stand mm -hmm. up for, you know, if I am in a situation or if I'm dealing with a f or, or trying to speak truth into someone's life, I can tell you, you know, verbatim, this is why I believe this. Not, well, I believe this because someone else told me, told me to believe right. it. Right. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, I think it empowers you too, right? I mean, you, yes, yes. you, if you, 
take someone who's ceiling if you take another human and say okay i want to be like this person there's still a ceiling to that yes but if you take god and you say well there is no ceiling so that's one of my favorite parts about christianity because i'm a huge like self-help kind of guy so there is not enough like christian christianity and its faith in general you can self-help yourself for eternity (laughs) because you're never going to be like god so um yeah. <laughs> so if if you were to have the ability to talk to every college student in the world, what would you want to tell them? Yeah, I uh, thought a lot about this last night, so uh we'll see if I if I pitch it well. Uh <laughs> the the war is already won. So Christ died on the cross and forgave all your sins, you know, 2000, whatever years ago. Give yourself some grace. You don't have, when you come to Christ and when you want to know Christ, you don't have to be clean. You come to Christ to be cleaned. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to construct this inauthentic, disingenuous ruse of a faith that is completely external to come to church, come and be dirty and be authentic and be genuine. And people will love you for that even more so than they would. If you have some facade up, I can't tell you how many people that I see at church and, or at Kennesaw in general that they come to church because, and, or they think I can't come to church because mm-hmm. I need to handle this first. No, you come to church and you get deep with God and he will handle that for you. Um, I think that's, for me at least, whether it's an addiction or struggles in relationships with how you treat people, friends, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever, how you treat your family, you know, dealing with uh, how you were raised, your parents, uh, siblings, uh, how you view the world, if you've experienced racial segregation or uh you know, racism or uh, just anything, anything at all is you make that God's problem because he loves you. And that's what, that's what being in a relationship with God is for is so that he can bear your burdens like he already has. Why, why, why is the concept of grace um, just, and it seems kind of like a fairy tale to some people, right? It's almost too yeah. good to be true that somebody can offer me grace and they don't even really know me, right? Mm-hmm. But for somebody to offer me grace and they actually know who I am, that's very scary. Yeah. So for college students, how do, how do you process basically both both, in, both ends of that, of that uh, spectrum? Yeah, I mean... For me personally, I just grew up around grace. So I, it was, you know, when someone, it's just like when you're, if you're in a playground and someone hits you, your parents come over and you say, all right, you're going to apologize. And you're going to say, it's okay. You know, you're, you're just wired like that. But for people that have never been extended grace, that's why it's hard for them to understand it right. because they've never, they've either never extended grace to someone else or they've never had grace extended to them or they believe that grace was never extended to them. Grace has already been extended to them through Christ, but um, they haven't 
personally experienced that from a one-on-one situation with someone else. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, grace can be one of the most profound ways to share the gospel is that, yeah, someone do, does you dirty, but as a Christian and as someone who wants to be more like Christ, you extend grace because if that person has never felt grace before, they're going to look at you and they're going to see Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you're supposed to do. So, um, understanding that, I don't know if we could all, we'll never understand like what grace was extended to us by the crucifixion, but, um, getting your head around that, I think just comes from experiencing it. I'm a, that's how I'm wired is just experiencing things. That's how you, you best uh, learn about things. But, um, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard, especially if you have never been extended grace before to be, well, why would I forgive that person? Like they Mm -hmm. did me wrong. They said this about me. They did this to me. But at the end of the day, that's what Christ calls us to do. And that's how Christ shows love is through grace. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think too, you have to show grace to yourself. And so that can, cause that's an internal war that people fight all the time. Um, I've, I've done it before. You know, I, I personally am a, I hate being complacent. And so when dealing with things or struggles in my life, um, whenever you recess or go back to, to the way something that you're trying to beat, yeah, I have to extend grace to myself because I am not perfect. And even though I am trying to get better at something um, or to get over something or to bury the sin, I have to rely on God and I have to take baby steps because I can't just snap my fingers and it'd be over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Good Lee, words. Thank, yeah, man. Yeah. Thank, appreciate thank you it. so much for the conversation. And I Absolutely. feel like um, we're really thankful just for the story and the journey that God has put you on and really thankful for, for just you as a person <laughs> <laughs> and um, your experiences are, I mean, from, from my perspective, man, those, they are, they are changing, not just your life, but the people um, that you, that you call your circle. Uh, and it's really, Absolutely. really good to hear of somebody your age being able to be bold enough to start conversations um, and come at them, not from an opinionated place, but from a place of learning and from a mm-hmm. place of grace, like we were just talking about. Um, so yeah, man, thank you so much for hanging out with us. It means absolutely. No, this has been awesome. Yeah. We're, we're all supposed to be a conduit for Christ. So this is a great way to do it. You guys are doing an awesome job. So good question too. Cool. <laughs> Thanks man. Appreciate it. All right. We'll Thanks, talk to you later.